The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Hello, everyone. Today, I have two guests for you, Mike Goudsward and Rachel Niemer, both of whom have come together to work on competencies for being an educational innovator. Their focus was largely on faculty and higher education, but I think you'll see that their work applies across contexts that it probably has some relevance for K-12, for educational innovation in many different environments, not just higher education. So let me tell you a little bit about them. Mike Goudsward is Associate Director of Learning Innovation in the Dartmouth Center for Advancement of Learning at Dartmouth College. In his role, he oversees a portfolio of learning initiatives and works with faculty to empower student learning through community engagement, emerging pedagogies, and educational technology. Prior to this role, Mike worked for six years as a learning designer as part of Dartmouth's learning design and technology team. Mike directs uh, Open Learning, the Open Learning Initiative at Dartmouth X, and was lead learning designer for the Professional Certificate in C Programming Series, which was awarded a 2019 edX Prize for exceptional contributions in online teaching and learning. And I could go on and on. Mike has quite a few accomplishments under his belt. He has a background undergraduate degree in history from Calvin University and MS in Environmental Studies from uh, Antioch, New England. And prior to Dartmouth, Mike taught quantitative literacy as a member of the adjunct faculty at Keene State College in Southern New Hampshire. And Rachel Niemer is also joining us. Rachel is Director of Outreach and Access at the University of Michigan. She holds an undergraduate degree in chemistry and women's studies and has a PhD in chemistry from California Institute of Technology. Um, A quote from Rachel, technology has always been an interest of mine. As I learned more about pedagogy and faculty development, my dream job was to explore how to best integrate new technologies into learning environments, and in particular, how technology might make learning environments more equitable. The Center for uh, Academic Innovation gives me a chance to intellectually explore all of my professional interests. So Rachel's current focus is on implementing the Center for Academic Innovation's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Strategic Plan, exploring new ways for faculty to engage the public with their scholarship and understanding how the center can best recruit, support, and celebrate faculty innovation. Prior to joining the Center for Academic Innovation team, Rachel worked with faculty and administrators to support teaching best practices as an assistant director at the Center for Research on Learning and Teaching at the University of Michigan. And before moving to Ann Arbor, she taught at the University of Rochester and Gustavus Adolphus College. So you're in for a treat. Let's get started. Rachel and Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bernard. So Thanks, I love, Bernard. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. And I love to get started here as we kind of go go back before we move forward. And it's nice to give the listeners a chance to learn a little bit about your work and how you got here. So using kind of the metaphor of climbing a mountain, the path to becoming a higher ed innovator or working in higher education innovation is rarely this, this carefully... Uh, 
uh, trod path that we all follow. We all come up in in different ways. So it'd be great to give each of you a chance to kind of tell us a little bit of your story and how you ended up in this line of work. So, um, Mike, you want to get us started? Sure. Uh, I think back about my journey up this uh, innovator mountain and starting at the base, I've always been in a community of educators. So I grew up uh, in, a, in a family and on a school campus in New Mexico and had really strong relationships with my teachers there. And through various steps in my career, I've worked in different industries, um, sort of found myself into a teaching role, whether that's formal or informal. And uh, I remember a few years ago, I was working uh, as a lighting designer in a theater near Boston and really enjoyed the time I spent as an adjunct at a nearby college and then went to graduate school and found a more formal role as an adjunct uh, at Keene State College in southern New Hampshire. And as a um, relatively new at least in the full-time context faculty member, I was really interested in any conversations about teaching and how to change our practice uh, and improve. And so I was a, a frequent flyer of the Teaching and Learning Center there. And as I was there, there were opportunities that came up to sort of move more into a learning design role um, through an online course pilot. We offered a MOOC with Open Educational Resources. And um, for the past six years, I've been at Dartmouth College, a little uh, up, up the Connecticut River, and um, have really enjoyed working with the faculty here and with students um, to continue that journey up the mountain. I, I think I'm far from the peak, but uh, that's a little bit about how I got here. Well, it's cold up on the peak anyway, I'm told. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm there either. <laughs> so, Rachel, how about you? Um, so, as you noted, we all sort of have meandering paths up this particular mountain. Um, I'm essentially, and I can unpack that if it's of interest, but essentially a first-gen college student. And when I walked onto the small liberal arts campus uh, um, of Bowdoin College, I fell in love with the academy and decided I pretty much never wanted to leave. I had actually planned on going to medical school. I had my whole life mapped out, and then I really fell in love with just being in the academy. So I ended up going to graduate school to get a PhD in chemistry, largely so that I could teach. And I discovered in graduate school that I, in fact, loved learning about chemistry, didn't really like doing it so much. Um, and uh, then I had an opportunity to actually teach for a year at another small liberal arts college in Minnesota, was reminded that I really wanted to find a way to teach, and um, ended up doing a short postdoc in, at University of Rochester. And then I found my way to what is now University of Rochester's teaching center. At the time, it was actually a more a student services office where we did tutoring and um uh, support for students with disabilities. And I ended up teaching a bunch of pedagogy classes to undergraduate science TAs. And as I was learning more about education and pedagogy, so to be able to do that job, I discovered this entire field of faculty development. And I was like, I mean, I can teach other teachers how to teach while still being in higher ed and getting to engage in like, really cool conversations. Um, and so I spent a couple of years 
working with faculty and uh, teaching assistants at University of Rochester. And then I grew up outside Detroit and University of Michigan's teaching center, which is the first in the country, had a posting open for somebody who uh, had a science or an instructional technology background. And although my background wasn't formally in instructional technology, tech has always been a passion of mine. And so I ended up moving back to Michigan and I spent four and a half years working in the Center for Research on Learning and Teaching. And then uh, shortly um, after it launched, uh, it being the uh, Center for Academic Innovation, I ended up transitioning into a role here. And I've been here now for almost four and a half years. And um, now I get to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I get to think about how to foster an environment in which faculty feel like they can innovate um, and really think about the interactions between higher education and its various publics. It's pretty cool. That's great. So you've both had very different journeys, but somehow you came together around a shared project that we're going to be talking about, and this work around uh, competencies for innovation among faculty. Uh, how did you How did you come together uh, around this project? Well, what? it was in New Mexico, actually. Or Arizona. Arizona. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm not Somewhere warm in the me. Southwest, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. In a gorgeous desert. Yes. <laughs> Well, it was about a year ago uh, that we gathered at uh, Biosphere 2, which is a lab now run by the University of Arizona. And there was a convening um, looking at uh, equity in STEM education. Um, and we did some good work in that area. But I think uh, perhaps around a campfire or something, Rachel and I got talking about some of the projects we had been working on and thinking about what are the competencies, what are the sort of common uh, intersections that support that work um, that we could investigate. Uh, and we had met each other a couple times before and said, let's keep going with this conversation. And then we got to run into each other at the uh, Hale gathering at Duke, where we sketched out these ideas in more detail in the hotel lobby one morning. And we find that um, grabbing 45 minutes in random places seems to be really productive. And for the purposes of the listeners, uh, Hale, I like to describe to people, uh, I like to describe it as sort of the secret society of higher ed innovators, which it sort of is or isn't. But uh, how do each of you talk about uh, what Hale Storm is? So I um, talk about Hale as a combination of a support group, a learning community, and a, a group of activists. So Hale stands for Harvesting Academic Innovation for Learning. Um, and the first one was held a few years ago in Ann Arbor, actually. And it's really become this group of individuals in higher ed from across all different institution types that connect with each other over shared challenges, um, provide ideas for one another, professional development for one another. And we've really grown to take what was an isolated set of centers and individuals at different institutions and begun creating a network where we can all work together to really advance um, higher education to where it needs to go for the learners of the future. 
Yeah, that's great. That's a that's a good description. I still like my secret society description, but that's that's a yeah. pretty good one too. <laughs> I, I I like that description, and I'll say, having attended a few of these gatherings, they have taken different shape, and in particular, this one that we were attending in Duke um, was uh, framed as a writing retreat, so a place where we could write ideas. And I think Rachel and I sort of found each other because we didn't have formal writing projects yet. Uh, we didn't have book proposals or things like that, but said, you know, if we don't sort of commit to something and sort of have an accountability partner, we might not write something. So let's write something. And hey, while we're there with all these other smart hail folks, let's bring them into the process as well. So we use that convening uh, to talk to people about some of our uh innovation competencies and interviewed them. And that led into the writing of the piece. Yeah, that's great. And I was there too. I was far less productive. In fact, the project that I started at that um, at that event, I have had to ask for two extensions with the publisher. <laughs> so <laughs> it's still it's still due. Well, we weren't quite so ambitious. You know, <laughs> we decided on a couple of blog posts. So that felt a little more manageable. Yes. Well, and I'd taken on this this new job that managed to, to take up a little bit of my time as well. So, well, let's dive into this work and, and give the listeners a chance to sort of hear uh, what you're thinking and sort of how this is coming together. So, um, how do you want to set this up? So, one of the things that Mike and I have in common, which I think is true of many people working in sort of the academic innovation space, um, but our positions in particular have been pretty faculty focused. How do we help the faculty do the work that they are trying to do? Which isn't to say that um, staff and students aren't also innovators, but uh, at least our charge here at Michigan is really um, focused on helping faculty innovate in the space of teaching and learning. And so we all have had experiences where projects were successful or weren't successful and wanted to understand how different people in the academic innovation sphere were defining innovation, and then how are they helping their faculty accomplish those goals? Yeah, so let's uh, actually walk through both of those together then. In terms of of your work around, uh, there's so two articles out there about this this sort of piece of the five competencies. Uh, how how are you defining uh, innovation as you uh, as you think about these competencies? I think we're we're defining innovation rather broadly. And since we've written these piece, pieces, we've talked more about the different scales of innovation and and realizing that they happen um, in many places on campuses and they might happen at a personal level. So someone might be introducing a new concept or practice into their own uh, teaching. It could be on a sort of group level where a department is changing something about courses or curricula. Uh, it could be that the institution is completely changing the way um, the course credit system works, or it could be a brand new idea to the world. Um, so perhaps different um, competencies are required in these different domains, uh, but we're, we're, we're very open about our definition and sort of thinking about making change in one's uh, practice. Yeah, I think one of the key things we heard in the interviews at Hale is that um, innovation happens within a specific context. And what's innovative in one place 
may be old hat or completely radical in a different context. And so um, we can't just talk about what is innovation, but what is innovation in the context in which we're each trying to do our work. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of I, I oftentimes just defined innovation as forward thinking. I keep it that broad. <laughs> um, although there is there's definitely in my mind, there there seems to be a pretty distinct skill set between uh, sort of classroom level innovation, kind of my being an innovator as an individual and trying to pursue these sort of school or college wide or ecosystem wide types of innovations. Um, and maybe that'll come out as we talk about sort of the the different sets of competencies that, that you talk about. But let's just go ahead and dive in to the, the first five. So um, I'll just kind of put them out there and then maybe we can talk about them. So uh, the list includes teamwork, intelligent risk-taking, challenging the status quo, which is my motto, uh, intellectual curiosity, and flexibility. Do you want to maybe just speak to uh, a couple of those and uh, describe sort of how they made it on the list? I'm happy to talk a little bit about teamwork. Um, it's uh, sort of a mantra around uh, our center that innovation is a team sport, that a faculty member is often, well, likely an expert in their domain, but they may or may not have expertise in pedagogy. And they probably don't have as much experience with project management and scoping a project and um, thinking about all the administrative components of a of building a software tool or designing an online course, if that's um, you know their sort of flavor of innovation. And I really don't know of many faculty who have come up with their idea or identified their problem, come up with their idea, and been able to pursue it all on their own with tremendous success. That the ability to recognize what you know and what you don't know, um, and who might be able to supplement in those areas that you don't know is absolutely critical. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'll mention the about challenging the status quo. Uh, Bernard, one of the your your personal mantra, as you said a moment ago, um, it takes someone who's willing to dig in. And I think that led to something we found in sort of our second set that people uh, highlighted that it was really important to also be secure in one's position to be able to challenge the status quo. And so um, thinking about that and uh, also sort of orienting our work in how we can provide some of those uh, supports around that. Um, so oftentimes uh, recognition of that work, um, if it's, uh, you, you know, through um, monetary means or through um, credit towards one's service, uh, can go a long way in sort of providing security in the position to also be able to challenge the status quo. Yeah, and that one really intrigues me because uh, I've been doing some work lately. Uh, one, uh, I'm intrigued by the way in which measurement controls so much in education, especially K-12, but it's, it's also higher education. And and so we kind of are, are drawn to highlighting and emphasizing the things that are most measurable um, oftentimes. And um, I've been uh, exploring different thinkers who are doing work around things that you can measure that we often think are hard to measure. For example, how do you mm -hmm. measure courage? 
and and that's this is where where I'm going with this. It's a long way to it, um, but uh, courage. Uh, I, I was just uh, reading something recently. Is sometimes one of the best ways to measure the presence of courage is look at the level of vulnerability of a person. That vulnerability and courage are almost inseparable. It's it's impossible to demonstrate courage without some measure of vulnerability. And and I thought about that when I looked at your list. So we talked about the first list of five, but the, there's also sort of a, a follow-up of five, and one of them being this idea of being secure in your position. Because in some ways, whenever I first looked at it, I thought, well, that maybe it just doesn't require as much courage then. <laughs> it doesn't require as much vulnerability. And so people are willing to uh, willing to take the risks. Um, but I don't know. I'm just curious. I thought I'd throw that out there and see what your reaction, reaction to it is. Well, one thing that emerged in the conversations about uh, risk-taking and challenging the status quo and what also folded in that per, that's uh, security and position was um, building an equitable space for innovation that um, if we wanted to encourage people who were at different stages of their careers and uh, in, in perhaps family commitment that we needed to have uh, institutional supports um, to, to uh, invite more people in. And so I think that's, um, you know, being able to get credit for being an innovator and seeing that as a positive thing among one's colleagues. And I was thinking about who in the, the faculty realm is actually the most vulnerable and how those are individuals often from minoritized groups and whether they have the courage capital to spend on innovation or not. Um, and thinking about vulnerability by choice versus uh, imposed, systemically imposed vulnerability um, and how we can make sure that those who might be in the most vulnerable positions get to choose how to use their courage, that they've got the support where they need it and they can put attention and energy towards innovation. Um, and so for me, vulnerability is a, a two-sided point as to whether um, you're choosing to make yourself vulnerable or you're, by virtue of um, your demographics or social identities, you're having a vulnerability imposed upon you. Yeah, that's beautifully stated. Uh, I would suggest as well that the outcome of any innovation, if if innovation is only limited to those who have this place of privilege and power and security, then um, then the outcome, the innovation itself, is mm -hmm. going to embody that value. So it becomes a sort of replicating. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so what about, we have teamwork, we have challenging the status quo. Uh, what about, in, I, I like the phrase, intelligent risk-taking. Sometimes we talk about managing risks, uh, and there, you know, lots of different phrases for this, but I was curious about how you ended up with that specific phrase and just what you mean by it. Rachel, I think that's that emerged out of some of the work and conversations you had with your colleagues at Michigan. Is that right? Yeah, so I was just thinking back on the origin story for that of um, that risk-taking is an inherent part of ch challenging the status quo, right? These aren't mutually exclusive 
competencies or mindsets, um, but that reckless risk taking um, often means that you're not actually going to be able to get others to buy into your idea. And so it, there has to be some calculus behind which risks you take and which rules you follow. Um, you know, there's this old adage of you have to learn grammar because once you know all of the rules of how to use language, then you know which ones you can break, break to be creative. And I think that that is true in the innovation space too, that you can be radical and toss out really um, awesome ideas, but if you aren't taking stock of the environment around you and um, how those ideas are being received, you're not going to make progress towards meeting your goals. The outcome is just not going to be nearly as successful um, if you can't build a coalition around those risks. And and then we have intellectual curiosity and flexibility. And now intellectual curiosity is one of those where one might think, well, if you're in in the in the academy, if you're in higher education, can you possibly get there without being intellectually curious? So is there something, um, and, and uh, well, maybe you want to answer that, but, but uh, so maybe talk to us a little bit about maybe how you're using this phrase intellectual curiosity. Is it that same kind of intellectual curiosity that leads so many people into the academy in the first place, or are you talking about it in a different way? So for me, I think all academics have a, an intellectual curiosity about them, whether they choose to ask questions about things that the academy has been doing for centuries or not is really the essence of what I'm thinking about with respect to intellectual curiosity. Lots of scholars question things within their own discipline, but they assume that because they were taught a certain way, that is the way that they should teach as opposed to really questioning everything about how they do their work as an academic, including their teaching, including their service, and um, trying to think about what is the best way, what is the most effective way to reach the goals of student learning. Yeah, that's well said. I'm in agreement. And I think it's just a uh, reorientation of the intellectual curiosity that academics have in their discipline towards the academy. I, I also think about intellectual curiosity, and I wonder, too, uh, I've been using a phrase uh, around design thinking about um, like humility, that there's this, this part of intellectual curiosity, and it also involves a humility to accept that what I think I know right now may not be. <laughs> may not be truth. Yes. And so I'm curious enough to seek out and see if there might not be something more aligned with truth than what I'm holding to right now. Absolutely. I think that resonates a lot with me that curiosity and humility have to be tied together in some ways because you can only ask the question if you admit to yourself that you don't know the answer. Yeah. And so we have the fifth one. We'll talk about these others too, but flexibility. Uh, anything you want to say about that? Well, I think particularly in innovation projects, uh, there are um, 
things will change along the way, like through the practice. So I think back to some of our early MOOC projects um, and just the idea of what the learning experience would be for uh, the learners and um, faculty often coming in with a preconceived notion of sort of a similar learner to the students that they knew. And so through, through the process, it required some flexibility of thinking differently about um, teaching in that space and also that the learner was going to be different than the students they had come to know. And um, so be able to shift the the project around that and sort of reorient oneself. You know, I think a little bit not about project management styles and um, this is probably familiar to some people, but sort of the waterfall style project management where you have sort of a big deadline and you sort of slog away or race away to deliver that or a more agile approach where you're sort of checking in with yourself um, and the team about what your new challenges are and what you're learning from uh, each other and perhaps test learners um, who are giving you feedback about your project. And I think the, those cycles hopefully in an innovation project are sort of built in. Um, often in our you know, teaching courses, that, that feedback might only come uh, one time uh, per course at the end and when it's a little too late to change the course, at least for that offering. And, and as we uh, go further, so we've gone through these five competencies, but you also note that there are, depending upon the context, there are these other kinds of competencies, competencies that also begin to emerge. And we also ref we referenced at least one of them being securing your position and personal motivation and sense of optimism and enterprising and leadership. And I have to ask, as you've gone through this and you've tested these ideas with more and more people, is there anything missing? Is there something that you've begun to notice and, and maybe think, wow, if I were doing this over, I think I might have to uh, adjust this or add this, or is it really holding up? Is this, is this uh, being clarified and affirmed the further you go with it? Well, we mentioned earlier in the, the uh, conversation that uh, Rachel and I really work well in sort of sprints of uh, work. And uh, so later last year, I had the chance to be in Ann Arbor and I stopped by Rachel's office and um, sort of generated a bunch of post-its. Um, do you have any of those in front of you, Rachel? I have all of them in front of me. <laughs> um, I have affordability or authority, credibility, be not afraid. Um, they're literally all still here, Mike. Okay. Uh, and one of the things that I think is holding true is that those 10 competencies are pretty common. Um, one of the things that I think Mike and I have realized, and we're going to get a chance to talk about this with others at uh, Educause ELI, is that we're coming from very specific contexts. And so we want to hear from more people um, about how they think about those competencies and how they're developing those competencies in their faculty. You know, we've talked about what we think faculty need, but we haven't necessarily talked about how to get them there. Um, and that is an open question. I think there's lots of scholarship on faculty development around, um, you know, preparing faculty to be scholars in their domain, to get grants, to write manuscripts. There's faculty development around teaching and learning. Um, 
there's for administrators, there's often uh, professional development around being a leader, but a lot of innovation comes from the middle um, or the ground up. Innovation is not always, right, even a certain, rarely a top-down phenomenon. And so how are we going to get a broad group of faculty well-versed in these competencies and the processes around innovation work? And that is something that I was just having a conversation with Angela Duckworth, and we were talking about character strengths. And obviously, grit is one area, but she runs this character lab where they explore a lot of them. Some people refer to these as socio-emotional skills. And it's interesting that that body of, of research right now is uh, at the point of understanding these these character strengths, uh, understanding these socio-emotional skills, and getting to the stage of beginning to figure out how to measure them. Like, how do you measure uh, the level of teamwork or the capacity for teamwork of a faculty right. member, um, which, which as we were talking about it, that seems to be a useful precursor to that next step of once it's hard to figure out how to help people develop it unless we can measure the extent to which they've developed it. And I w- that was one of my questions for both of you is, is, uh, is that an, on your radar as a next step about developing tools or identifying existing tools that can help measure the uh, presence of these competencies in individuals already? Yeah, I think measurement is uh, certainly on our minds about um, how you can identify which of these are present and which could be further um, supported and seeded. I think there's also um, opportunity for programming and resources. So if you had a toolkit around the innovation uh, competencies that uh, colleagues in different contexts could bring in as um, supports for faculty doing innovation work, that would be a a real service to the community and probably um, sort of further our exploration of these competencies and add to them. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about in that piece is, in that Educause piece, is that the context in which a faculty member is innovating is going to shape what skills and um, mindsets they need. And I was actually talking to um, an associate dean in our medical school who oversees their innovation center, and they've actually developed an instrument to measure the culture of innovation. Um, I'm really looking forward to diving into that to see whether there are metrics within that survey that they've run a a baseline and pilot in the health system here, whether there's items in there that we might be able to pull out to think about measuring at the individual level somebody's propensity Um, to display teamwork or grit or flexibility or intelligent risk-taking. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think about sort of a, we're using a lot of um, nature analogies, at least they're in my mind today. So the former, what what a lot of your work seems to be focused upon is um, what, what are the conditions under which a tree can flourish or grow in the forest. And mm-hmm. what you're just describing is they're looking at it as what are the conditions under which a forest can flourish? <laughs> yep. 
That's great. I love that analogy. <laughs> so with, yeah. that, with that in mind, um, what's the next step? I, I wanted to get to what's the end game, but maybe there's something before the end game here. Um, what's the next <laughs> step with your, with your work, with your project? Um, uh, I'm assuming that you're wanting to take this to a place of, of professional development and opportunities for formation and growth. Um, where do you see yourself going with this? Well, Rachel mentioned that uh, in the near term, we're headed to Educause ELI in um, in Washington State in about a month and are bringing this framework and um, hoping to get input from a broader uh, representation of colleagues there about these projects. Um, and what's been really useful is sort of collecting examples. Um, so in our uh, interviews with people, we've asked them to think about a particular project that they've worked on and then sort of think about these competencies. Um, so I think we want to continue that work and and we want to keep writing about it. And what is the end game? So I don't know that this is the end game, but one of my curiosities at this point, um, really just a hypothesis, is that we graft these tension pairs of, you know, are you at an institution that um, has an intrinsic motivation to maintain the status quo, or are you at an institution that has a culture of continuous improvement? Um, and I am really wondering whether humans are ever able to recognize that they're in a culture of continuous improvement, um, or whether we are all just cynical enough to believe that our institution doesn't want to change. And I want to understand when an outsider sees innovation happening at an institution, whether people at the institution are seeing that as innovation or not. Um, and again, I don't know that that's endgame, but the conversations that we've had around this work has me thinking really about um, how people view their own institution and how that is going to have to shape the faculty development efforts that we that anybody puts forward. Well, I really like the uh, comparison to the tree to the forest. Um, having done graduate work in environmental studies, thinking about changes in forest takes a different um, instrument than looking at a change in a tree, an individual tree, and often that's happening over longer time scales. Um, so. End game is to have an instrument to measure continuous improvement, steady state uh, awareness, and um, I think also having a toolkit to address the competencies to really um, support faculty in all all uh, positions and you know diverse institution types to be able to be working on innovation projects. Well, this is really interesting work, and I'm excited to see where both of you take it. So maybe in a year or two, I'll have to bring you back on, and we can find out the status of it and um, how it's developed into, or what it has developed into, I guess. So thanks to both of you for your good, important work in this area, and um, uh, I hope it keeps going. Great. Thank you thanks so much, much for, for having, having us. us, Bernard. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote... You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.